0: Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew in chapter 24, reading verses 15 to 28. Uh, So uh, hear the word of the Lord uh, in faith and also rejoicing that we have the word uh, recorded for us in Holy Scripture. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of, by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Praise God for His Word.
1: Uh, As a very quick introduction to my introduction, uh, let me say that it's most popular in evangelical circles to hold Matthew 24 as being entirely future. I bring to you a a different view that it is past, present, and future. Uh, So as we work through the text, I simply uh, ask that you would uh, keep that framework in mind. There are elements that are of it that are decisively future, but there are elements that are decisively historical. And more importantly for us this morning, uh, there is uh, decisive elements that are continually uh, present in our lives. Uh, and that, I think, is the nature of the text before us. Uh, Jesus is describing the future. The disciples want to know what the future holds. It's really uh, part of their question in uh, verse 3. Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. The text in my mind is composed of two questions. Uh, When will these things be? has a reference to verse 2 and the destruction of the temple in which uh, stone by stone the temple will be destroyed. That's their first question. When will that happen? Second question, what are the signs of the coming? Uh, at the end of the age. Again, the second coming of Christ. Two questions. Uh, first part of this chapter deals with the first question. Uh, the latter half of the chapter deals with the second. What we must struggle with as a church is the continual relevance to our own day. The text, uh, beyond describing the times, because Jesus never tells the apostles when, and neither does he tell us when he describes the times. Now more important than the times is the response to the times. That's really the critical element of the text. How do we respond to the signs? Uh, because absent that, description of the times is really just that. Uh, and then, I think in the text, uh, more importantly for each of us is a divine provision. How can we make it out of this age alive? in light of the decisiveness of the danger. So there's an application for us as well. Well, the description of the times is in verses 15 to 21. What's it going to look like uh, prior to the destruction of the temple? Really need to think about that because it would have been a decisively uh, important event for the apostles. Uh, a significant emotional experience to the Jews would be to see their temple destroyed because so much of their lives was bound uh, up in the standing up the temple. Jesus says, uh, because they have profaned the faith, it's going to be destroyed. Namely, they have profaned the faith by rejecting Him. And then there's a divine provision in verses 22 to 28. The provision is decisively important. I hate to continue to use the word decisive. But as a reminder, the times are incredibly significant. And so is the divine provision. Most people go through life oblivious to the times. The church needs to be different. The key to the description, verses 15 to 21, is the immediate application of flight. So they're going to be told in a sense, and when you see this, you need to flee immediately. And that, I think, is an overarching notion of the text. Again, not the times, but the response. The proper response to the times is going to be immediate flight. The first description is called the abomination of desolation. recent New Testament scholar by the name of R.T. France, he's since deceased... uh, describes the term as an idolatrous affront to true worship. Something so shocking uh, that it utterly profanes and will ultimately destroy what true worship is. I might make an application in the sense that I think the American church is long in the tooth at redefining what the faith is. I'm not so sure that we're not redefining the way to God. Uh, I'm not so sure when we ordain alternative lifestyles in the church that we are not profaning the church in an incredibly significant way. I'm not so sure that when church members belong to denominations that are engaging in such that they should not engage in immediate flight because that's the application of the text. And the importance of this text is not the description of the times, it's the ethical response to the times. Because if you don't respond aright, then the times really are somewhat meaningless. Uh, the phrase is an illusion, as as you know, or I perhaps uh, uh, would say that uh, should know, is an allusion to its three references in the prophecy of the book of Daniel. So that there is, uh, in the words of our Lord, uh provocation to understand Uh, the prophet Daniel, where the phrase uh, is used. Uh, It's used three times in the book of Daniel. That should frame an understanding for us uh, as to what the disciples will see in their lives and what we will see in our own lives as members of the church of Jesus Christ. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 is the uh, first uh, marker from the prophet Daniel. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wings of an abomination will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who will make desolate. So that's the first allusion of our Lord in Matthew 24 to uh, Prophet Daniel. Uh, The context of uh, this verse is a prayer for restoration in what I think is one of the greatest messianic promises of all of the Scripture. Uh, But also one of the greatest tragedies of all of the Scripture, namely the national rejection of Israel of the promise of the coming Messiah. And the consequences to that are really, uh, verse 27, the abomination of desolation. Verse 24 is a vision of all that Jesus will accomplish in His coming in six infinitives. Let me read that text because it's so important that we understand what it means to reject it. Uh, I might pause momentarily and say that if you're not a Christian, uh, the six infinitives of this text frame what Christ uh, does for His people. If you reject it, then of course there are incredible consequences that are present in your life now, but of course are present in the net future. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. My own understanding, Christ did that in His first coming. And so the text is a reminder that the city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt and Messiah will come as part of a sabbatical cycle of seven years and a multiple thereof. The nation of Israel has been under probation. Christ comes. Uh, they break their probate, probation and reject him. Verse 27 is the consequence of that rejection. Uh, first part of verse 26 and the first part of verse 27 speak to our Lord's three and a half years of earthly ministry because He puts an end to the sacrificial system. Uh, The entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament pointed to the coming of Christ. Once He comes, He puts an end to it. We no longer offer bulls and goats. Christ is the final, infinite sacrifice for the sin of His people. And therefore, we no longer return to the shadows when he is the bright and shining reality of the work of the grace of God, the cross. Again, if you're not a Christian you don't understand the cross, just simply read Daniel 9.24 because that's what it is. He puts an end to the sacrificial system because he is the last sacrifice, and I might add, only sacrifice for the sin of his people. But the nation rejects Him. And the consequences are in the second half of verse 26 in the parallel of verse 27. Namely, the destruction of the city and the sanctuary. Uh, simply a good reminder with respect to rejection of verse 24. There are consequences to unbelief. Uh, our culture is uh, long in the tooth uh, in rejecting consequences to anything. That's not so in theology. Uh, When you reject Christ, you're on dangerous ground. That dangerous ground is now described for national Israel because the temple is going to be destroyed. That which they held so dear is going to be taken away from them forever. And God will start a new temple in the church. The immediate fulfillment, of course, uh, of the use of Daniel 9 and Matthew 24 is the coming of Rome that is an immediate fulfillment of, uh, of uh, the coming of Rome. Let's look at Luke uh, chapter 21 in verse 20, which is a parallel text uh, to the one before us. Again, Luke 21, 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. So that Titus and his four Roman legions besieged Jerusalem for five months, defeated the zealots, effected destruction upon Jerusalem, and tore the temple down stone by stone, trying to get at the gold get at the gold that was melted in the firing of, of the temple precincts. Uh, both the zealots and the Roman soldiers in their legions profaned the temple. Uh, the Roman soldiers profaned it by bringing Roman standards into the temple and offering sacrifices to the gods of Rome. That was an abomination of desolation because an idol comes into the holy place where God localized His presence and. uh The Romans, of course, worshipped their own gods. They profaned the temple. The zealots, of course, uh, profaned the temple by roaming uh, freely in the holy place and by deputizing a clown as a high priest. Again, profaning the temple precincts. I might add by application is that the Spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel profaned it by rejecting Christ. We have previously studied that he was in their midst, teaching as part of his last week of life. They say no to him. He leaves the temple for the last time. As a consequence of unbelief. Reminded to us that sometimes you have to seize the opportunity when it's there. They don't seize it, they reject him, and he leaves for the last time, never to return, except in judgment judgment portended in the coming of Titus and his four Roman legions. The second allusion in Daniel, Daniel chapter 11. Again, I'm simply reminding you that our Lord is uh, preparing to the prophet Daniel to give us an understanding of the abomination of desolation. Uh, The immediate fulfillment for the apostolic company is Roman standards in the holy place and a sacrifice offered to the gods of Rome. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. And forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Again, this prophecy has an immediate fulfillment in the nation of Israel uh, subsequent to the days of the prophet Daniel uh, in Antiochus Epiphanes, who set up an altar to Zeus in the holy place and who sacrificed a pig on it, and then engaged lawlessness by making loyalty to the covenant uh, a capital crime. You know, again, that would be like desecrating some uh, historical place that was of immediate great significance to, say, American culture. Whatever that might be. Uh, But a desecration of the holy place was an incendiary event to the nation of Israel. Antiochus comes in uh, in an attempt to Hellenize the covenant people Uh, He profanes their temple by uh, sacrificing a pig, which, as you know, would have been violation to their dietary laws and uh, uh, invoking lawlessness with respect to covenant loyalty. So fulfilled uh, Daniel 9 by Titus and his Roman legions, I think the reference in Daniel 11 is uh, fulfilled by Antiochus. Uh, another illusion, Daniel's 12th chapter, verse 11. And from the time the regular sacrifice is about finished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1290 days. Now, the context of uh, this abomination is a future distress uh, followed by judgment and reward. It's a question in verse 6, uh, how long, uh, till these times are fulfilled? And there are three temporal references in Daniel 12, verse 7, 11, and the 12th verse. And I think in my own mind, they're symbolic of times of persecution and a sifting of the covenant community. But again, it's not the time. But the context is essential, namely persevering and overcoming. And I think here Daniel's reaching way into the distant future, really speaking of our own day, in the sense of continuous fulfillment of the prophetic literature. Look at verse 12, uh, which is a reminder as to how we should respond to the times of sifting and tribulation. How blessed is the one who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days reminder of the blessing that falls upon the faithful who go through persecution, tribulation, who go the end, who go the distance, who don't give up, who don't fall away, who don't retreat, because loyalty to God and to the cross is of paramount importance, and breaking that loyalty is, of course, uh, an act of uh, profaning the grace of God. So Jesus is telling the apostles when they see Titus and his legions uh, besieging the city, uh, they're about to erect standards uh, in the temple that will profane it. Uh, Again, he's describing the times as to when the temple is going to be destroyed. presence of Rome is a marker of the time. Uh, But I press upon you the suggestion it's not the times, it's the ethical response to the times that is the significance. Uh, We oftentimes think of prophecy, uh, knowing the end times as being important, but it's really not the prophecy. It's how you respond to it. Uh, Because they create an ethical demand. And it's found in our own text, the ethical demand of the times. Uh, What's the ethical demand for the immediate company and the apostles when they see the coming of Roman legions? Well, verse 16, is that? that demand. Matthew 24, in the 16th verse. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now let's think about it for a moment. Think of of your own life, how difficult it would be to flee. I mean, don't we... Don't we make procrastination an art form as Americans? Well, I'll be faithful to the Lord when I get the promotion. I'll be regular in my service to God when I graduate from the university or the trade school, whatever our calling is, high school. Isn't one of the greatest lies spawned by the gates of hell itself that you have plenty of time? The ethical demand to the apostolic company when they see Rome and its legions marching upon the city is to get out of town and to get out of town immediately. I mean, look at the text. There's no time to pack a bag or to return home to pack one. That's decisive action. That's alacrity, that's responding with a sense of urgency. There is no time to pack a bag. Woe to those who are with child or who are nursing because they cannot engage with alacrity. A woman with child can't not respond with such quickness. A man can flee, but she cannot. And Especially if she's nursing because of the demands of the infant they are going to slow her down. Woe to those, Jesus says. In other words, the urgency of the times. Pray that it's not in winter on the Sabbath as these events forestall time. It's a reminder of this in uh, Genesis 19, is there not? The angelic company uh, comes to Lot and says to him, get out of the city. and Don't look back. Get out now. It's going to be destroyed. I mean, come on. Come on, angels. I gotta set my affairs in order. I gotta get my 401k set up. I've got a lot of things to do here. Uh, you got your time, but I got my time. They tell him to get out now. And he flees the city while it's being destroyed behind him. By the way, that's a picture of the world today. It's gonna to be destroyed. You better be engaging in a spiritual flight away from the worldly system as it attempts to envelop you like the tentacles of an octopus to keep you from flight. One of the shortest sermons ever preached by Jesus is about the flight of Lot. Luke chapter 17, verse 32. Here's the sermon. Remember Lot's wife. Because she could not totally and irrevocably flee. She had to turn back for one long-lasting look. And in a moment, she was gone forever. It's a great reminder. Not to make your home in this world. You're here as a pilgrim. And pilgrims are engaging in spiritual flight away from the world system. And every institution of our culture is attempting to slow you down and get you to stay, to make your home here. And I think the greatest sermon that could ever be preached for such folly is remember Lot's wife. Because when the destruction comes, you have no time whatsoever. And then the final analysis, you and I are but pilgrims moving through to our celestial home. You make your place here. You're on dangerous ground. And that ground will one day be destroyed. Again, if you're not a Christian, you may think that's folly. But the folly is uh, on you because the Word of God, which is true and irrevocable, is telling you decisively when Christ comes, you have no time to get right with Him. Time will be gone forever. That notion will be developed more fully in the rest of this discourse, as well as the ethical demands in the 25th chapter that mark uh, the sermon that's called uh, the Olivet Discourse. Remember Lot's wife. Be careful what you set your affections upon. She was not. In a moment, she was taken forever. In terms of the apostolic company, uh, it is said historically that when the believers saw the legions coming, they fled the city. They were spared. Because they knew the events of the time More importantly, they knew the ethical demand to get out of town. And the reason, of course, for the haste is the outbreak of great tribulation, verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. Again, I think there's an allusion here uh, to Daniel chapter 12. uh, The first verse. Great applications are not that our Lord uses the Old Testament because Scripture was decisively important to Him and should be to us. Now at that time, Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Again, the near fulfillment is Antiochus. The far fulfillment is the coming of Titus and his Roman legions. Uh, But I think there's continual fulfillment in the life of the church. Uh, Jesus is saying that the time of distress is starting and the sifting will be violent. It's almost as if he is shouting to us, saying, Get out, get right with God, and get orthodox in your theology. Because time is fleeting and there's no time to waste. So again, a description of the time to the apostolic company about the coming of the Roman legions. I think there's continual uh, historical relevance in terms of the life of the church. Uh, But again, uh, it's the ethical demand. Get out. If you're in an immoral relationship, get out. If you're living in an immoral culture, get out. If you're living in the presence of an immoral church, get out. There is no time. Get right with God. Get orthodox in your theology. Because the time is fast approaching uh, in terms of the presence of the end. Let's look at the divine provision to the apostolic company. Eventually we'll return uh, to its application in the life of the church. Verses 20 to 28. Remarkable provision for God for His people in the midst of the Roman invasion. The first provision, verse 22, is that God will shorten the siege for the elect. Lest those days have been cut short, no life would have been spared or saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Uh, the siege of the city lasted for several months, but God cut it short uh, to uh, preserve His elect. But by the way, there's uh, <laughs> a great application here in terms of theological provision. uh, That is the doctrine of election. God sovereignly elects His people. And God sovereignly dispatches His Son to die for them and sovereignly dispatches His Spirit to protect and preserve them. In terms of the elect, in the days of the apostolic company, the days of the invasion are cut short to preserve and to protect the elect because of the decisive spiritual influences for deception that abound in such perilous times. God protects His people. Everyone else will be destroyed. In and of itself, the doctrine of election frames the gospel. He elects His people in His Son, Jesus Christ, believe in His Son, and you will be numbered among the company of the elect of God. Uh, the second provision is capturing warnings to uh, protect the company against deception. Verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise. Again, we've looked at this already in verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. In other words, the deception will be so pronounced only the elect will be preserved from the deception only the elect will be rescued again a great reminder of the gospel that uh, god in his grace dispatches the spirit to protect the elect from being deceived apart from the spirit everyone else is deceived you want the spirit come to the son you get both son and spirit and the grace of god in the doctrine of election It's a great reminder throughout the message of the Scripture that God protects and preserves His people. And one of the protections of His people is they're kept from being deceived. Jesus, of course, is describing an invasion of imposters, verses 22 to 28. Simply historically, the outbreak of war against Rome by the zealots Uh, gave rise to a heightened messianic expectation and, of course, deception. Uh, False prophets and false Christs and Antichrist uh, simply exploded in the times of the Roman invasion. Only the elect survived the pretense. Only they can. Not of themselves, but because of the Spirit dwelling within them. It is our reminder that the doctrine of election is the foundation to security and perseverance. It's a doctrine that's much maligned today. I kind of scratch my head over that because how could you malign that which is essential to the church? The security of the believer and the perseverance of the believer is tied and bound to the great doctrine of sovereign election. I'm amazed at the church today that casts such aspersion on such a great doctrine when perseverance and security is so critical to our daily lives. We can wake up with the only hope there is. We won't be deceived because God has set His affections upon us in eternity past and made it happen in the coming of Christ in spirit. The third provision is reminder that the second coming will be visible and evident, verses 27 to 28. In other words, the coming of Christ will be manifestly evident. You don't have to wonder if uh, Joe down the street is a false Christ uh, because it will be so clear to the elect at his coming uh, that they won't fall prey to imposters. Christ will come to be sure. But it will be public, it will be evident, and it will be visible. Uh, there is a sense of the coming of Christ uh, in the destruction of the city. Uh, but this really goes beyond that. Uh, verses 27 to 28, that the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, of which uh, is a doctrine that I'm entirely committed to, will be visible and evident uh, to the church and everyone else for that matter. The weather weather metaphor is uh, very instructive. Just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. You know this metaphor in Oklahoma, don't you? You've been outside in a dark storm, seen the flashes of lightning. You know it's occurred. You saw it with your eyes. That's what it will be like when the coming of Christ occurs. The flashing of lightning is manifestly recognizable. And it will be so with the coming of Christ for His people and anything else is utterly premature and false. It's the same with the proverb that closes the text. 28th verse. Wherever their corpse is, we vultures will gather. It's a kind of a strange proverb, but you've seen this, have you not? You've seen buzzards circling at some point, driving down the highway, and oh, there's a bunch of buzzards circling. What's the end state of their flight pattern? Some kind of corpse. In other words, it's evident. And so too is the coming of Christ for his people. We manifestly evident. Coming of Christ. Second coming of Christ. It's a doctrine I'm committed to. Visible for his people. To rescue them finally from the forces of destruction unleashed by the forces of evil and darkness. Let me turn to the continual reality of the presence of these prophecies in the life of the church. Because I believe that Antiochus and Titus are types types that have a fulfillment in church life in America today. When I say there's a type, there's going to be an Antichrist. It's going to come. If there's a type, there's going to be an anti-type. If there's an immediate fulfillment, there's going to be a distant fulfillment in a secondary form, because that's what typology is, indirect prophecy. Uh, Prophecies are fulfilled in Antiochus as he tried to Hellenize the nation of Israel, profane the temple. Uh, The prophecy respecting Titus and the coming of uh, Roman legions were fulfilled but they pretend a greater time of fulfillment and I believe that that is the reality of the text this morning and its ethical demands in terms of continuous fulfillment. Because the New Testament authors allude, I think, to Matthew 24 in the coming of impostors that will invade the church, to profane the church and to destroy it. Let's look at some of these texts. 1 John, chapter 2, 18th verse. Children, it is the last hour. Again, I don't have time, but I think that is an allusion to the hour spoken of in the uh, septuagint of uh, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, indicating the presence of tribulation. But notice, and just if you, heard, you have heard that Antichrist is coming, that's a prophetic event. Antichrist is coming. Notice what's happening now. Even now, many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know it's the last hour. In other words, the end-time tribulation of Daniel 12.1 has begun, and we know it's begun because of the presence of the sign of the coming of many Antichrists who will come into the church to attempt to deceive it and destroy it spiritually. So from the one Antichrist, we have the many that have already begun the invasion into the life of the church. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, a prophetic event. But notice the present fulfillment. And now it is already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist has invaded the world to affect deception and destruction. Also come into the church to affect deception and destruction. Only the elect will be saved. Certainly if they heed the call to get out while there's still time. something, if you will, of a reminder First 1 John, because he's telling uh, the church in his own age that sometimes the church can be a dangerous place. The presence of imposters and deceivers. How can you know that such are present? Well, John gives us a number of ideological tests. One of them is the incarnation. It seemed like a pretty easy test, but the problem with the deception is Like our political culture, people lie. They don't mean a historic incarnation. They simply redefine it to be some faith event. In fact, they might even deny that there is a historic reference at all, only that you believe it is the important reality. Well, that's nonsense. How can true faith be based upon something that's non-historical? That's the whole point of the Apostle Paul writing in 1 Corinthians. Christ came. They saw Him crucified. They saw Him resurrected. They saw His appearance. In fact, some 500 saw His appearance. Our faith is based upon eyewitness accounts. A historic account. I don't understand this nonsense of people standing in pulpits redefining theological terms. But I begin to understand it when I looked at our political realities where they redefine everything and they lie about everything. And guess what? That spirit is present in the American church. It's deceiving people. It's like an octopus, tentacles wrapping itself slowly about you, attempting to choke out your life. The ethical demand is to get out to understand the importance of doctrine and theology and when it's profaned, to leave quickly. Again, I simply bring you an example that's becoming more and more prevalent in some of the great American denominations, ordaining alternative lifestyles. Contrary to the doctrine of sanctification and perseverance. Now, I understand. Well, Pastor, you're so anachronistic. If you were only inclusive... Look, I didn't make the rules. Jesus did. I simply believe the Bible and the Word of God. He makes the change, not me. When Christ regenerates one of His own, there's decisive change over time and in degree. And how we can ordain men and women and bring them into the life of the church with alternative lifestyles is an enigma, but that is an abomination all of its own in the life of the church. But guess what? People stay, don't they? And people buy into the deception There is, I think, a conceptual parallel to the concept of abomination. Daniel, Matthew 24, it's the presence of literal idols in the Holy of Holies. Roman standards, Greek gods, sacrificing a pig. But conceptually, I think there's a parallel to false theology and lies and deception, profanes the church, destroys the church. Becomes a church in form only. And everything else is gone and leaves. And I'm not so sure that Jesus doesn't leave. In fact, isn't that something the reality and invitation of Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock? In other words, He's been pushed out of the church. He's knocking to get back in, but they've rejected Him and pushed Him out. And forsaken repentance and believing the truth dangerous ground, and Christ is outside the church. Let's turn to the provision, the provision for God protecting His people. It's present, Matthew 24, it's present for us today. Let's go back to uh, the danger that I read from uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, the fact that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world, that the invasion has already occurred. But notice uh, the provision that's divine for God protecting His church. Verse 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. We can't be deceived because our God is greater than all of the forces of the world. What a great hope for the Christian that the forces of deception and lies are all about us swirling about us, calling us to come and to give up and to reject the faith. But God is greater than all of those forces. That's a cause of our perseverance. That's a cause of our going the distance. That's a cause of our refusal to come under the guise of deception. Greater is God who is in us than the God of the world who is always about us, seeking to destroy us, devour us. That the elect of God cannot be destroyed because the very presence of God guards them and protects them from spiritual deception. What a great promise of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, you won't get out of this world alive spiritually. Come to Christ and he will protect you and set his seal upon you. Uh, it's, it, it is the reality, one of my favorite verses is one that I've already looked at and then I'd like to return Uh, to the Gospel of John. Uh, I didn't read this far when I was looking at Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, but it's a great promise of what God does for His people. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. That's the doctrine of election, meaning that all of the elect written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world will be rescued. None will be lost. What a great promise of God that He gives to His people. That sometimes even the church is invaded, but God protects His own. Starts new churches. Starts again someplace else. A new address, a different location, a different address. Because He's protecting His own. They get out and they come to a different place. Everyone of the elect will be rescued. Not, oh, oh, I hope they make it. Oh, I wish you good luck. We'll be rescued. That's the grace of God. God will keep his elect, and none will be lost. Isn't that the reality of the words of our Savior in John chapter 6, great reminder the importance of the gospel. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Christ will rescue his own. You want to be numbered among his own? Come to him. Forsake yourself and the world. Come to Christ and you will be rescued. That's the description of the end of the elect of God. Of all that He has given me, that's the doctrine of election, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Will be rescued. The theology of Daniel 12 verse 1 is all over these texts. Will be rescued. He loses none. It's the greatness of our Savior. The Father gives to Him the number of the elect and He will rescue them all and none will be lost. He will raise them all up on the last day. What a great, great messianic promise and reason to flee to Him from the world, from your sin to stop the presence of the cross. Christ everlasting. John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. Promise of Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. And all of the forces of darkness cannot get at his sheep because he is their final and last and only protector and he is good at what he does. He loses none. We'll raise them all up upon the last day. I mean, I understand all of us come to church and sometimes we're discouraged, maybe depressed, maybe the events of life have overcome us, you know Christ. The promise should be all over you. And so should rejoicing and praise. The momentary light afflictions of this life are not to be compared to the glory that awaits the sons of God. And they will be rescued, to be sure. The climax of... uh, this concept, conceptual parallel of the abomination of uh, desolation uh, comes from the words of the Apostle Paul because he too speaks of the present danger of lawlessness in the life of the church and the future danger of an incarnate evil. Speaking of the man of sin and will come into the church and attempt to profane it. Uh, great text here is Second Thessalonians. Second chapter. Church is wondering whether Christ has come or not. Paul is uh, writing to them to correct them of, uh, of their folly. He does so. Second chapter, Thessalonians. I'm going to read verses three to four. Let no one in any way deceive you because deception had come into Paul's church and he's warning them of deception. For it will not come until the apostasy comes first. Apostasy in the life of God's professing people. I think in the American church we're long in the tooth in that end. It's a great falling away that's occurred, but it will advance and intensify in the future to be sure. And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. That to me is a conceptual parallelism to abomination of desolation. Taking a seat in the temple is figurative, like Jesus says of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, teachings of Matthew that uh, they they take the seat of Moses. That's not a literal seat. There was no literal seat of Moses. Is it the take over? They took over his teaching office, and so this man will come into the church and take the seat of the office of God and profane the church. I happen to believe, again, I understand it's widely rejected in American culture, church culture, I might add, that uh, uh, the church is the greater fulfillment of the temple. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, that you are the temple of God. The end-time temple has begun in Christ and His resurrection. We are that temple. I understand that many people are looking for a geographic temple in the ancient Near East, but to me it's the church, the people of God. The Antichrist in some way will come into the church. I I don't know how that's going to be fulfilled. Maybe television, maybe radio. Uh, I just know it's going to happen. And by taking his seat uh, in the church uh, and to make himself out as an object of worship is conceptually parallel to an abomination of desolation. Notice verses 7 and 8. For the mystery of lawlessness means the coming of that man is future, but what's present? Verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The spirit of lawlessness is present now. Great deception, delusion, Redefining of great orthodox Christian truths, a rejection of historic orthodoxy, blessings upon everything that is profaned in the scripture. We could go on and on, but I'm simply telling you that Paul is saying it's present now, even though it has a greater future fulfillment. He says Jesus will come and destroy that man and everyone aligned with him. And so if you're in such a church, get out. Flee while well, you still have time. I understand. Oh, oh, but pastor, I'll, I'll change the theology. Oh, but pastor, I'm, I'm having a ministry there. You know, that's what he's telling the people in Matthew 24. You don't have any time. You don't even have time to pack a bag. Pray that it's not in winter. Pray that you're not with child. Pray that you're not nursing a child. Leave now and don't look back. Remember Lot's wife. Something of a conceptual parallel here from the book of Genesis, is there not? G.K. Beale makes an outstanding argument that the Garden of Eden was a temple. And Adam was a priest of God. He was to keep the temple, protect it, and defend it. All of a sudden, Genesis chapter 3, there's a serpent that comes into the temple. An unclean animal comes into the temple, and Adam does not throw it out. He permits it to stay. And he watches the serpent as it deceives his wife and leads all humanity into the guilt of original sin. The only answer to that is the second and the last Adam in the coming of Christ who will protect his people and teach them aright. The serpent deceived Adam by misquoting the Word of God. You and I must learn the Word of God and know it and hold it dear, lest we're deceived. So what's the divine provision for the coming of this man and the agents of the false prophets, the spirit of lawlessness present in the life of the church today? Paul's going to tell us. A provision for protection. Verse 13 to 15. But we should always give thanks. To God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Did you see the doctrine of election there? He chose us for protection. And it was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm. And hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Hold fast. The doctrine of election and its corollary in perseverance. Hold fast until the end. Hold fast, don't give up. Get out, get right, and get orthodox. And all along the way, hold fast to the doctrines of Christ and the doctrines of the hope of our calling and the riches of the grace of God. If you're not a Christian, maybe this is your day to begin that whole flight to the Savior, the only place of safety, and holding Him all along the way, for He is the only place of eternal safety. And so Jesus has described the future in a past historic event, in a continuing reality in the message to the church, but most important is the ethical demand. Flee, hold fast until He comes. Reminder of our own diligence and faithfulness. And the greatest reminder of all that our ultimate safety is in knowing Christ. For He loses none of all those given to Him by the Father. May our Lord use these great promises to provoke us to love and to good works, to flight to safety in the sun, and to holding fast to the traditions of the Bible and the truth of the Word of God as our safety in this dangerous time. May God be with us to these ends. Amen.